Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You guys, welcome to episode 90 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives into well-known, or more importantly, not-so-well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. It's me, Troy McGeady. How are you? It's good to hear from you. I'm back. <laughs> I was gone last week, and now I am back. I had a tough week. It was a really, really hard week for me at work, and um, also my grandmother, who... I often describe in this podcast as death-defying, lovingly, and I call her death-defying because she performs the true elderly version of, like, evil Knievel stunts all the time and, like, lives to tell, you know what I mean? Like, she'll climb, like, a rickety chair to put a lunch meat lid at the very top cabinet in her kitchen for no reason, just to see if she can, and then occasionally she'll fall and shatter her pelvis, and I call her death-defying because she heals like Wolverine. You literally, I mean, she could, I I mean, like, she can survive anything. She could fall down Mount Everest at 95 and get to the bottom of the mountain and, like, stand up and crack her back and, like, go on about baking baking a sweet potato pie or whatever she's doing. You know what I mean? She's just that girl. Um, And this past week, she had a, uh, she had really had blood pressure and she is now suffering from dementia which I never thought would happen to my grandmother for some reason, even though she is in her 90s. She's always been um, sort of ditzy and, like, again, very lovingly bird-brained. I mean, as far as I can remember, from me being, like, eight years old, my grandmother has always called me her cat's names on accident. She calls all of us her pet's names, pets that died, you know, 20 years ago. Um it's just like part of her identity that she's like kind of like ditzy and silly. So when actual dementia started creeping up, I think like all of us collectively kind of ignored it. Cause it was like, you know, that's who she is. Like she's, she's silly. Uh, but now it's actually like to the point where she doesn't know the year and things like that. So it's a whole thing. And, uh, you know, I think that like everybody who has grandparents that are really old wishes that they could just, <laughs> Like, I'll speak for myself. Like, sometimes I wish I could just, like, dip her in something and, like, crystallize her and, like, place her in, like, a Precious Moments figurine box and just keep her forever. Like, I want to be 90 along with my 95-year-old grandmother. Do you know what I mean? Um, So the thought of, like, losing your grandparents is really scary. And uh, and it's inevitable. And we all deal with it. And it's gross and sad and... Yeah, so that was that was my week, and I'm back, and I'm excited to talk about Gwyneth Paltrow because I promised you that we were going to continue this Gwyneth Paltrow kick that we're on, and 
I had so much fun last week researching her. Um, you know, and the thing about Gwyneth Paltrow, especially, I can even tell just from, like, the response to this episode. She's so polarizing. And she's so, or not this episode, but the previous one, you know what I mean. She's such a polarizing character. And I feel like people are completely split down the middle when it comes to Gwyneth. And there are people like me who see her as this, like, you know, marblite smoking down-to-earth girl who you can, like, have a glass of rosé with on a patio and, like, chain smoke. And I feel like she's a girl who has a really good, like, playlist on her phone. Like, I feel like she listens to really good music. Um, I, I, I look at Gwyneth Paltrow as somebody that you can call at three in the morning because you, like, need a friend and she'll, like, be there. Like, I see her as, like, a really cool, like, down-to-earth, like, almost like a girl's girl. You know what I mean? She's had the same relationship since kindergarten. And... She's also your friend that will occasionally do something very pompous or, like, um, like very, like, what you would consider a Gwyneth Paltrow thing, but she'll, like, make fun of herself for it. Like, I feel like if me and Gwyneth Paltrow were friends, I could make fun of her, and she'd be fine with it. That's how I see Gwyneth Paltrow. I also see her as the girl that, if you just so happen to open a bottle of wine at, like, midnight, it doesn't mean that that will be the last one. You know what I mean? Like, she's, like, a fun girl. Like, I could definitely see us... <laughs> this actually just got really creepy. Um, but then there's the other side of it. <laughs> I could see me and Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm just going to end it right there. Um, but then there's the other side of it where I feel like there are a lot of people who see her as this very, like, icy, cold, um, uh, you know, Upper East Side, uh, like, yuppie, sort of, like, nose-in-the-air cliché. And I understand that. I feel like that opinion is the opinion of a person who hasn't taken the time to do 17 pages of notes on her, I'm just saying. Um, no, I think that that's, like, an, a, an opinion that you would base solely on, like, the roles that she's taken and kind of, like, the way she speaks and how she was raised and what she looks like. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's, like, what she leads with, but you would get to know her and realize that that's probably not the case. Um, and her relationship with Ben Affleck is so interesting, specifically because he was a rebound for her, and... I mean, what better guy to rebound with than Ben Affleck, especially a 90s Ben Affleck, which we'll get into. Um, but yeah, I'm excited. I, I want to continue this. Hopefully, maybe next week we'll talk about Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris. We'll talk about that conscious uncoupling. Um, but yeah, for now, I'm excited to get into the Ben Affleck, ben Affleck of it all. And also, I should warn you before we get started, because we have talked about Ben Affleck pretty in- extensively on this podcast... I did an episode on Ben and Jennifer Lopez with my friend Maria. Hi, Maria. Um, and then we just did an episode on Gwyneth Paltrow. My notes are a little all over the place, but I'll guide you through. Of course, I'll take your pinky nail and plug, pull you along. I will not let you get lost. I read through my notes, and they make complete sense, but they're just not typical to how we do this podcast. Um, and yeah, I guess we can go ahead and get started. Uh, ben and... Gwyneth, I don't know, for some reason it's hard for me to say Ben and Gwyneth together. I keep wanting to call him Brad, because that's where my mind is. And I probably will throughout the podcast, so just ignore it. Act like you don't hear it. Um, So Gwyneth and Ben started dating in fall of 1997, and they broke up in October of the year 2000. And having just come from an engagement with Brad Pitt, and, you know, possibly the most 
like publicized relationship in the entire world at that time. Obviously, Ben was seen as a rebound for her. And they met during a dinner party that was thrown by Harvey Weinstein. And I also should warn you that this is an extremely heavy, uh, an extremely Harvey Weinstein heavy episode. I had a lot of Harvey Weinstein content to cover because we're talking about Shakespeare and love. And I just really wanted to, I myself personally wanted to have a better understanding of why Harvey, Harvey Weinstein basically has owned the Oscars for the past however many, 20 years. And I understand that he's a producer that does films and, you know, he, it obviously it makes sense that he's there, but I wanted to understand why Harvey Weinstein's impact at the Oscars was so intense and why he just sort of handpicked people he decided should win Oscars. So I did a lot of digging. So just trigger warning, we're talking about Harvey Weinstein a lot in this episode. And uh, yeah, they also had a very typical sort of like, let's dodge questions um, until the end thing. Like, that kind of Hollywood relationship that I always tell you, I personally think is a bit attention-seeking. And it makes me wonder if the couple doing it kind of wants people to do that. You know what I mean? To, like, obsessively try and figure out what's going on. I just, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's very, like, Brad. and it, Yeah, it's a brave, like, Brad and Angelina to me. Where it's like occasionally we're this like reclusive couple that doesn't talk to the press. But then we'll decide to do a seven page pictorial in our home uh, for like Vanity Fair. You know what I mean? It's like, let's pick a side. It's also been reported that Gwyneth got the typical Ben Affleck treatment. You know, she was cheated on. And to be honest, I can't really imagine the true atrocities, well, atrocities, 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 atrocities. I can't imagine the atrocities that she was privy to during this time. Being in a relationship with a young, not sober, new money, poke the player, Brad, or er, see, Ben Affleck. God damn it. She saw all the things. And this, by the way, is Ben in his most primal state. Like, let's be real. In his 20s, with like several packs of cigarettes, you know, a, a whole satchel of camel lights for the night a pocket full of money from Harvey Weinstein going in between, you know, New York and LA, hitting up every strip club along the turnpike, skipping through the pages of sex ads, having his pick of the litter. This is 90s, not sober, hot as fuck Ben Affleck. So, like, satchel your wig, clip it in. You know what I mean? Like this is like this <laughs> this is Ben. This is the Ben that we all grew to love, where we thought he was a little cute frat boy, and then you realize, you know, you get older and realize he's like a Steve. Um So yeah, I'd like to pick up where we left off and seeing as how Gwyneth kind of dove headfirst into this relationship directly after breaking up with Brad Pitt, who we spoke about last week, that's where we're gonna pick up. Um we left off talking about Gwyneth Paltrow's life, um, having just starred in the movie Emma. Uh, the Jane Austen novel from 1815, and we talked about the importance of her being Brad Pitt's girlfriend in the movie Seven, obviously the impact that that had on her life and on her relationship. But I wanted to circle back to a very specific time, 1998, which was a really big turning point in Gwyneth Paltrow's life, career-wise and relationship-wise. Um, she had just received all this critical acclaim and all this, you know, sort of mainstream love from like art house audiences and mainstream audiences, the general public really loved her. Um, and the art house 
people sort of saw her as like the next big thing. You know, she was placed in that very acclaimed noses in the air, it girl category. The one that I've told you a million times actually scares me more than any of the other ones. Any of the other it girl subcategories. Just because it's the one that, in my opinion, you tend to see the hardest falls. And, you know, it's a really high pedestal to be put on. And the celebration period seems absolutely sickening. But the minute the audience gets tired of you being absolutely shoved down their throats, all hell breaks loose. And with that being said, I mean, I do think that Gwyneth is really lucky that she got to experience this moment in her life and in her career during a time before social media. And, you know, the invent of websites like BuzzFeed and, you know, Snapchat. Just to, like, really make you feel like there's no escape from certain people in the industry. People that the industry has decided that they're the next best thing and that if you don't like them, you're fucked. Because we are going to bombard you with content surrounding them. Cough, cough, Cardi B. Don't come for me, but I'm just saying. It's like, we. when did we just decide that Cardi B was going to be the next, like, I don't even fucking know. I don't even know what to compare her to. The next, like, Diana Ross... Like, she's already at, like, icon status, and it's, like, at every turn, she's being pumped in your throat nonstop. You know what I mean? We're not getting into that, though, right now. Don't you dare. Don't you dare come for me. Um, Gwyneth is also still sort of reeling from the fact that she was exiting, like I said earlier, maybe the most highly publicized relationship in the entire country and in most parts of the world. And I also mentioned that this was a true period of self-discovery for her. You know, sort of coming to the realization that she had been acting like a self-absorbed asshole for the past few years um, because of how fast her star had grown in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, she described it as sort of having all the obstacles removed for her and sort of not not being able to continue the development of being like a, a fully formed person because you no longer have to struggle or even really think about anything. Things just happen for you. And um, also 1998 was a huge year for her because she was the lead in five really big budget successful films. Um, Great Expectations, which I've told you is my favorite Gwyneth Paltrow movie. Sliding Doors, Hush, A Perfect Murder, which is another really, really good underrated film. I love that movie. And Shakespeare in Love, um, which is a large portion of what I really wanted to talk about today, which we will get to. And then as far as Ben, if you didn't listen to the episode that I did with Maria on Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, I would really suggest going back. Just pause this where you are. Seriously, pause this and go back and listen to that episode. We did a really extensive look on Ben's growing up and his childhood, his addiction issues, his love of prostitutes and strippers. We really went all in. And by the way, can I just say... I was just reading the comments on iTunes for this podcast, and I got one recent really negative comment about how uh, how much detail I give about the person's life before the relationship. And, like, call me crazy, but, like, to me, that stuff is so important. Like, it's so important to know how a person grows up in order to, like, understand their relationship pattern. And a really prime example of that is Pamela Anderson. Because there's so much stuff about Pam Anderson's life the abuse that she faced before she was famous, the sexual assault that she went through, and all that stuff that kind of 
helps you understand why she has a bad picker, as I said in the episode. So I will not be changing the format of this podcast. Like, that was a really valid complaint, and I understand it. I think the title of the of the complaint was Get to the Point, um, something if I had a nickel for every time. But um, it's important, you know what I mean? And that's why I think that you should go back and listen to the episode that we did on Ben, because his upbringing is such a huge part of who he is. Like, that frat boy Boston bullshit that we all fell in love with in the 90s, that's Ben Affleck. Like, you have to know those things in order to uh, appreciate the man he become. Um, Maria and I talked a lot about Goodwill Hunting, which is obviously extremely important in the, you know, the story of Ben Affleck's life and how he came to be. Uh, but it's also important because it's really cemented his relationship with Harvey Weinstein and Miramax. And I hate to lead with this, but Harvey Weinstein plays such a huge part in Gwyneth and Ben's relationship that we unfortunately do have to talk about him a great deal today. And I, I want to get into like the whole, you know, Gwyneth being known as the first lady of Miramax and... I want to get into the impact that this specific film had on the film industry, and more importantly, on award season, um, specifically because of Harvey's particular brand of bullying when it comes to uh, the Oscars and the Academy, sort of giving into his, like, his insane tactics. Um, and I also wanted to talk about how sleazy and fucked up it is that Hollywood uh, was not only so accepting of the way that he used to campaign for his films to be nominated and to win. Um, but the fact that Hollywood seems to have adapted his, his way of going about things. And that's kind of how the Oscars are run now. Like Harvey Weinstein's impact on the film industry was so intense that now every studio does the Harvey Weinstein thing to get Oscars for their people. It's disgusting. It's, it's wild. We'll get into it though. So, as I mentioned, Gwyneth and Ben actually met at a Harvey Weinstein-hosted dinner party in 1997 before starring in um, the movie together in uh, Great Expectations. Wait, what? <laughs> in Shakespeare in Love. And this sort of, like, mid to late 90s era was a time in which Harvey Weinstein was trying to sort of create this, like, Avengers squad group of people around him that the industry would know these people were all solely his. These are his actors. These are his people. He's the one that puts them in films that win awards. You know, they're the biggest names in Hollywood, and they will forever be known as the people who got their start and got their Oscars and, like, a star on the Walk of Fame, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because of him. And that was very much Harvey's gig. He loved being, like, the reason that so-and-so was famous and, and being celebrated. He's very, very Trumpian. Like, Harvey Weinstein has so many Trump qualities when it comes to the way he runs his business, the way that he treats women, um, his sort of grandiose view of himself, the delusion. It's it's so Trumpy and it's insane. And then shortly after the dinner party and the announcement that they would both be cast in the movie, rumors pretty quickly started to spread that Ben and Gwyneth were an item. Uh, Gwyneth actually said in an interview, I've just been through a very public relationship that isn't a pleasant experience, but I will say Ben is really nice and we're very good friends. If there's one thing I've learned, <clears throat> it's that I'm not going to talk about my relationships anymore. I don't talk about my personal life. I did it in the past and I didn't think about it, but it's not, it's just not a good idea. I think it's private. You dilute it and you really mess with it when you start to let other people in, let alone the entire world. 
I used to tell everybody everything. I didn't, it didn't occur to me not to. I would say things about being in a relationship that felt wrong to me even as I was saying them. And it wasn't about whether I wanted to say more. It was more concerned about hurting the reporter's feelings or coming off in the interview as being overly self-protective. You always learn, unless you're an idiot, from your previous experiences. And I've just gotten burned so far it's too many times. So I'm not going to talk about Ben. This one is for me. And um, Gwyneth and Ben made their first really major public appearance together at the Sundance Film Festival during their arrival at the uh, at the River Horse Cafe. This is so Ben. Uh, he apparently bent her over his arm and made out with her in front of a line of uh, assembled photographers and journalists. Ben loves a grand gesture when it comes to love. Uh, Maria and I talked about how when he was courting Jennifer Lopez, he took out an ad, like an ad in a newspaper or like a magazine, um, just to say how amazing she was in a film. Like he paid for a, a spot in a magazine to just to say how great Jennifer Lopez was. And, and then he showed up on her red carpet with flowers while she was in a relationship. Like he loves like a, a romantic comedy giant grand gesture. <laughs> they were also photographed spending the next two weeks together in Manhattan shopping for Christmas gifts. And in early 1998 is when Ben Affleck and Matt Damon won their Golden Globes for Goodwill Hunting. And around that time, Gwyneth told the press, they're going to get that Oscar. I told them they win the Golden Globe and I'm telling everyone they're going to get the Oscar. They absolutely deserve it. And I just know it. Um, ben also uh, started filming Armageddon at the time with Bruce Willis and Liv Tyler. And Gwyneth spent a lot of time on set with Ben during uh, the production of the film. It was also around this time that Gwyneth took it upon herself to play matchmaker and introduce Matt Damon, who she was obviously spending a ton of time with, um, to her best friend at the time, Winona Ryder. But the only problem was that Matt was in a relationship with Minnie Driver his co-star from Goodwill Hunting. There's so much Hollywood folklore behind this gaggle of friends that like I just want to like really get into a couple things. First of all, Matt meeting Winona was apparently what caused him to break up with Minnie Driver. By the way, live on the Oprah show. Do you know this? Like do you know this story? Did you know that Minnie Driver didn't know that she was no longer in a relationship with with a uh, Matt Damon, and that she found out while he was on the Oprah show. And he, like, basically announced that they weren't together. She had no idea. And then not even a day later, he was photographed out with uh, Winona Ryder. And she told the press that she was stunned. I mean, she was honest about it. She was like, I had no idea. He broke up with me on television. We didn't speak again. Um, this was also around the same time that Gwyneth allegedly, and I'm saying allegedly because I truly don't believe this story, but I love the folklore. I love the folklore behind it. And I love that so many people think it's true that it's now just sort of a, a part of like Hollywood history. But Gwyneth allegedly stole the screenplay for Shakespeare in Love from Winona's living room. She recently was on Howard Stern in 2018 and she denied the story, but I'll, I'll just, I'll tell you, I'll tell you all the things. So apparently, Gwyneth was at Winona's house and saw the script for the movie on her coffee table. So she read a little bit of it, and then she asked Miramax if she could audition for the movie. 
And in 2006, after Goop was launched, she wrote a post on her website that most people agree was about Winona. She said, back in the day, I had a friend of me who, as it turned out, was pretty hellbent on taking me down. She went on to write, I restrained myself from fighting back and I tried to take the high road. But one day I heard about something. I heard that something unfortunate and humiliating had happened to this person. And my reaction was deep relief and happiness. Can we talk? Sorry, I had to stop recording for a second because I just got an alert on my phone. And also, uh, Russ Martin messaged me and told me that Wendy Williams just filed for divorce. And I'm reeling. Not to get off. I'm reeling. I'm sorry. You guys, I'm freaking out. Wendy Williams just filed for divorce. It's official. It's happening. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Maybe we'll do a Wendy Williams thing. I wanted to do a Wendy Williams episode so bad. You don't understand. But I didn't feel like it was the right thing to do because there's so much happening in this story and it's developing so fast, obviously. Anyway, we'll go back to... Anyway, but can we talk seriously? Like, that's crazy. If that's true, I mean, how can that quote not be about Winona? That something humiliating had happened to her publicly? But as far as their friendship and this sort of foursome that they had going on, the press was eating this shit up like peanut butter and jelly, obviously. They were living for the double dates. They were living for the photographs of Ben feeding Gwyneth pasta. They were living for the pictures of Ben and Matt, you know, sitting on benches at the park, being able to insert like these alleged quotes about them giving relationship advice to each other. They were living for photos of Gwyneth and Winona, like shopping and claiming that they were finding matching gifts for their men. You know, it's it's a fun story. It kind of writes itself. And, you know, Ben Affleck did an interview with Vanity Fair where he said, if I had gone by the tabloid stories of it, I would have been like, okay, look at those fucking chumps. I just want to smack those people. And I kind of wanted to smack myself, but it was one of those things you can't help. And what was I going to say? Look, dude, don't go out with her because it'll look weak. I couldn't say that. It's also worth mentioning, by the way, that Ben Affleck was very calculated in his approach to the media during this time. Um, He was, in fact, nominated for an Oscar, and as we all know, um, and as Gwyneth predicted, and, uh, you know, one can only assume he was being sort of guided by Harvey Weinstein on what he should and shouldn't be doing and wearing and where he should be going, what he should be saying. You know, he and Matt showed up at the Oscars that year with their moms, something that the press absolutely fucking lived for. And it's also ironic because at the same time, Leonardo DiCaprio was being absolutely hammered by the press for not showing up at all because he wasn't nominated for Titanic. You know, he was being called a spoiled brat while Matt and Ben were being named Hollywood's like golden boys, you know, the rags to riches story, blah, blah, blah. And uh, this also plays very heavily into the media's perception of these two at the time as a couple. Ben was... The good old boy, fucking Joe Sixpack, down-to-earth, normal guy, trying to adjust to fame. He's so cute. He doesn't know he's cute. He's a guy's guy, blah, blah, blah. You know, he had a reputation, as the press would refer to him, as a frat boy with a big heart. And I think, in some ways, it was almost to diminish or water down his rumored issues with addiction and gambling. It's like, well, he's a frat boy. Um, You know, he also was described as someone who would say thank you to waitresses and treat each, you know, crazed fan as an individual and never make them feel badly about approaching him at a restaurant or whatever. Very similar to Brad, actually. Um, He was compared to him a lot during this time. 
And Gwyneth, as usual, was the one that got the bad rap. She was the one that got the sort of negative press about how she was in the media. You know, she was the scorned lover who had been dragged by the press and she was bitter and, you know, had what the media described as edgy feelings about fame. And it's like if edgy feelings are what you would call being guarded because in your last relationship, you were fucking ripped apart and had nude photos of you sold to like People Magazine and Playgirl to the, you know, and just to the press in general and the man who is running the fucking studio that you work for, who manages your career and tells you what you can and can't do and tries to get you paid less than other people on set, but tells the media that you're um, the first lady of his production company and also has tried to rape you. Uh, if that's being guarded or having edgy feelings, like, doy, what the fuck? Um... She said to an interview during Ben's Golden Boy Award season era, she said, celebrity is such an empty pursuit. It's like you get famous and everyone around you starts changing just when you need them, to, just when you need them the most. You need them to react to you as you, the person you are, but they believe you've become someone else. Um, also, for Ben's 26th birthday in August of 1998, Gwyneth surprised him with a $21,000 platinum watch from... Harry Winston, uh, which was originally lent to him for the Oscars, and apparently Matt Damon told her how much he loved it and how much, you know, he secretly wanted to buy it, but he was like, you know, and this is the media's per uh, perception of the story that, you know, with him being such a Joe Sixpack and a normal guy who was so new to having all this money, he felt badly purchasing a $21,000 watch which is ironic, given the person he became with Jennifer Lopez, where he would just buy her a Bentley whenever he felt like it. Um, and then a month later, uh, he was photographed surprising her while filming The Talented Mr. Ripley in Italy on her 26th birthday um, with a pair of Harry Winston diamond stud earrings. Now, as promised, I really, really want to talk about Shakespeare in Love, like, a lot, because this movie is so prominent in, I mean, we'll get to it. And then once we talk about it, you'll understand. But like in the way that we give out Oscars and the way that award season works, I mean, this is like this movie, there was before and after Shakespeare in Love. And Gwyneth winning that Oscar was a, a turning point in media and film and pop culture and celebrity, like just everything was different after that. You guys, I hate to cut you off, but at this point, I think you know the drill. You've got to be a Patreon member to hear the remainder of this episode. So go to patreon.com slash ebpsychos. At that point, you will uh, be asked to donate. And then when you donate at this level, you'll get this podcast. You'll get the remainder of all the episodes every single week. You'll get Liz Bentley's Feathers in My Hair, which is the Teen Mom podcast. Um, you'll get me and Molly's uh, Brittany and Kevin Chaotic special. You'll get all the stuff that Molly does exclusively through Patreon. It's well worth it. And also, if you're not a member of our Facebook group, go to mollyandthepsychos.com. It'll take you straight to it. And uh, all we do all day and all night is talk about reality TV. It's super fun. So, like I said, patreon.com slash ebpsychos and mollyandthepsychos.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.